Hey everybody, welcome back to another fantastic episode, in my opinion, of Reality Check. I am joined with Jay Widener. How are you doing, Jay? Doing good. How are you? I, I am fantastic. And of course, all you people out there can see who our guest is today. It's the one, the only, Cliff High. Cliff, how are you doing? <laughs> doing just fine. Excellent. So listen, folks, if you like what we're doing here, it is completely optional. If you'd like to show some support and say, hey, I like what you're doing. You're putting in a lot of work, a lot of energy, and having some great guests. Please check out our Patreon at Reality Check. Links are going to be in the description box. And do like, share, subscribe here at YouTube because we've got a lot of exciting things coming here on Reality Check. Now, I'm not going to show a crystal today because I do that, you know, Cliff. We show some <laughs> yes, crystals. I know. I actually love crystals and, and rock yeah. hunting. Yeah, but it's just. Yeah. It takes too, too much time to, for me to get involved with. I'd have to go to one of those bucket places where they may basically hand it to you in a bucket of uh, sand and let you work it out yourself. <laughs> well, I love those too. Bucket places are great. Yes. But the problem is, is I can never, I can never have enough. I love them. I would eat them if it was possible. They're like little bits of candy. However, today went on a walk this morning and, uh, Sorry, my green screen issues I'm having, folks, but we'll, we're going to ride the wave. I ha found this beautiful feather, and it is an owl feather, and I've been having some visitation from my fellow feathered friends of the owl species kind. And, you know, take this however you want, but feathers are perceived as gifts from the sky, the sea, and the trees. They arrive unexpected, unexpectedly, but not without purpose. And that's how I feel. A feather from an owl symbolizes wisdom, the ability to see things normally, a creature of the night, silent and swift. So just a little, little special gift today. And I just wanted to share that space today. And uh, our topic with Mr. Cliff High here is we wanted to discuss the deep woo that deep woo, those pockets of woo. Oh yeah, and the trigger, what it means to be human and alternative perspective. So I'm gonna hand it right on over to you, Jay, cause he's got a review here. Yeah, I just wanna take a couple minutes. I just finished uh, David Icke's new book, The Trigger, mm -hmm. Real Doorstop, <laughs> um, It's no doubt his most important book ever written. Uh, it's actually two books. He wisely released them at the same time, the first book is a blow-by-blow -blow investigation of 9-11. And the second book is Who Did It? In David Icke's opinion. Now, <clears throat> I'm not gonna get into this in a big way, but I'm just gonna say this. There is a lot of information that has been dumped over the last two to three months. Information that was formerly forbidden to be talked about. And uh, one of Widener's laws are if, if uh, uh, the, the ones yelling conspiracy theory are the ones that are actually doing the conspiracies. Well, information has been released that has been formally forbidden. And I'm watching it. And since I'm a guy who believes that everything is orchestrated, I was wondering what was going on. And then I read this book and I realized this is the culmination of a release of information which is going to cause something maybe not so good to happen. And I'm a little bit worried about it. And not saying that David Icke is wrong, he's not. I, I, I know everything in those books. I, I know every fact. 
I've never seen them put together blow by blow like that. And so it's kind of a shock. After 900 pages and three straight days, you literally don't know what to do because the people that did it are walking around free and they'll never be prosecuted. And um, so I don't know. What I think is going on is that literally the guys that rule the world are about to come out of the closet. That's what I see going on here. So that's all I got to say about the book. I think everybody should read it. I highly recommend it. Uh, it's a stupendous read. And uh, the first book should have been written by uh, Bob Woodward or Carl Bernstein or somebody in 2004. It was a book that should have been written in 2004, but no one has a guts to touch the subject. Um, and so there's never been a book that lists a blow-by-blow -blow account of everything, all of the weirdness that happened on 9-11. And I mean, whoa. So kudos to you, David. I don't know what your what your is going to happen to you. I think you might your life might be in danger now. Uh, in fact, I know it is. And um, uh, what you did was the only thing I can say is it almost has a Christ-like sacrificial quality to it, um, as if you've decided to just throw all caution to the wind and announce everything in a book that's, and it really makes me think of something else and I'll be done is the, I made a movie about it, but there's a prophecy from the Vedic texts about the, uh, the 10th avatar. There's 10 avatars that come to earth to help humanity. Krishna was an avatar. Buddha was an avatar. And, <clears throat> <clears throat> the last avatar is, is Kalki, and Kalki in Sanskrit means white male. Kalki is from the word chalk, same word, and ki is man or human. And um, so it's going to be a white male that is the last avatar, and what he's going to do is, because he's the male aspect of Kali, he's going to bring on the end. He's going to release information which is going to cause the idea the perception of our world to forever be altered and that's what this book is doing and so i don't know i i, I know that david ike had uh psychics tell him years ago that he was Kalki. i know that so is he Kalki? is he the last avatar uh if he is this is be exactly what Kalki would do is write this book that's all i got to say <laughs> yeah sure i mean he's he's taking us into so many different areas all at once okay all of which have um uh, uh touched on the subject i wanted to bring up which is alternate ways to understand ourselves as humans right so right. let's look at the, let's look at this idea of, of ike as cult right as the white male okay well then first we have to examine that we've got a duality because we've got kali and kalki right all right, so this goes to one aspect of one of the things that I wanted to, to bring up, which is this alternate view. And let's, let's jump way into this alternate view and forget about the beginning. And one of the alternate views is that we all know, and it's within our language, and it especially shows up in the New Age movement, where you hear the phrase all the time, but we all know that we're not 100% here in these bodies. And I'll explain that in a second. All right, because, but you hear it all the time my higher self. I got to connect with my higher self, right? Okay, so this is an expression 
And it's taken many different ways, but at its core, if you think about it, it means that there's some part of you that's not in your body. Right. So we can define the, the self that's in the body as the doer because we do things, okay? Mm -hmm. And as far as we know, our higher selves are not in bodies and they don't do things, but we know they exist, all right? We know they exist in all religions and all different cultures. There's some phraseology that represents this idea of a higher self outside of our body that we can connect with our conscience or whatever, whatever, right? But so here we are with the idea that uh, we have a doer in the body that is somehow separated mechanistically. We're not going to go into how that occurs from the higher self. And the higher self can be described in a number of different ways. And I have a very good, accurate description, which we can come back to later. But let's concentrate on the doer in the body for a minute. Now, uh, we, <clears throat> I'm going to state some things and not, not devolve into trying to prove them through, through stages of thought. I'll just state them and we'll just accept them for the, for the sense of argument, okay? And in one of the things I wanted to bring up is that in our minds, whenever we contact numeracy within this reality, and, there, and numeracy is the ability to manipulate numbers, think about them, is in a weird part of your brain. And, and whenever you think about numbers, we as humans should have no allegiance to the number 12 um, uh, physiologically, right? We don't have 12 eyes, we don't have 12 ears, we don't have 12 digits, any of those kinds of things. Arguably, there were perhaps humans that had 12 digits, but we'll leave that aside, okay? And just say with our particular subspecies of humans, we should be uh, decimal-based, 100% decimal-based because we got, got our 10 digits. But, but somehow the number 12 comes into our life repeatedly in all of these various different aspects. One of the more prime ones that dates way the hell back is astrology. And that derives from astronomy and the ability of people to sit there and track the movement of the stars and time through the heavens and categorize it. And we're categorizing, as humans, we like to chunk things up and categorize it, label it. And then we also like to... Um, uh, uh, compile lists of things that are all similar, pattern matching, okay? One of the things we do is that we'll, as, as when we're um, looking at the stars and stuff, we'll, uh, way back in a primitive state, you'll identify a tree and you come out every night that spring and that tree is still there. Yeah, the tree is growing, but nonetheless, you get a, you get a what's called a gnomon and you use that as your reference point in looking at the stars. You'll chunk it up into the zodiac naturally because they're, it does, they're not, yes, you can apply the imagery of the animals and so on, but you needn't even go that far. You can see that there's actually these segments. <clears throat> we also have this um, uh, notion of 12 that expresses itself in, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> in all kinds of our uh, literature and language around the maritime. Uh, there's, for instance, like the rule of 12 about tides, which is how fast the water moves and so on in tidal flow, but we're bound to the idea of 12. When we come into the doer in the body in the, in the number 12, it only makes sense in relation to this one understanding. And that is that all of us are but one twelfth of the complete doer. Okay, so we're not the complete human that our self would have us think we are. Not just as there is a larger, greater um, uh, entity that is our higher self, not in our body, we also have to understand that within this body, we are but one out of 12. 
six of which are female, six of which are male. This is in perpetuity. These six that are female will always be born female. The six that are male will always be born male. But the identity of the doer in the body alternates. Male, female, male, female. Each life, and, and we basically, the doer in the body has lives lives in succession. But each one of those selves is different from the other selves that also share the responsibility of being the doer in the body and also share the greater connection to the uh, higher self. The higher self, just for those who care to know, is divided into the knower and the thinker at the highest levels. And this is saying, where we... Are you saying that like 12 lives are being lived at the same time? No, no, that's a, that's a misunderstanding. That's like this guy um, out of Australia thinks we're living billions of lives. Yeah. Seth, okay. also. Right, uh, it, okay, it doesn't work. It doesn't actually work that way. Okay, yeah. this has gone into detail in a book called Thinking and Destiny, which is every bit as, as 1,080 pages. So it's probably every bit as big as David Icke's, and it's much denser than David Icke's because it's not presenting uh, events or any of that. It's presenting concepts. So it takes a while to get through. But no, you, d you live in a serial fashion, sequentially. So when, when I die, this self dies in this body, my the doer that I'm one twelfth of will be born again almost instantly, but as a female. Okay. And then over the course of time, there will be those 11 other births. And then this self that is now in this body will be born again in another body. Some perhaps some thousands of years from now. Okay. Because there need not be a sequence that is the succession does not happen based on any given individual life. So I'm not guaranteed that if the other 11 each lived to be 100 years, that I would be born once again every 1,100 years. It doesn't work that way. Usually the span is several thousands of years. And, it, and the more active you are in any life, the more expenditure of key you have, and the more interaction with the universe and the response back, the more you have to assimilate during the metempsychosis. Metempsychosis is the, the mentition that goes on after you die and before you're born again, okay? Right. During that period of time, you have work to do. And that work involves assimilating all of the crap you've been through in the previous life. So the more you're putting out and more you're having a, a huge amount of impact and have to assimilate it all, the longer the, the duration between lives. So you'll note that people that reincarnate where we have uh, almost instant acknowledgement of reincarnation, especially in places where there's large populations like India, et cetera, where you'll have somebody that's three or four or five years old that understands both parents. They remember their previous uh, set of parents and they died when they were 12 or 18 or something, but they lived a very brief life and they recycled because they didn't have much impact on, on the universe, so to speak, right? Okay, so, so there's these statements in there. The longer, you, the more impact you have on universe, the longer you're gonna be in your your metempsychoses. Uh, you're but one twelfth of the whole process. This, by the way, explains uh, transgenderism, which is a misidentified state by psychiatrists. Psychiatrists having gone absolutely batshit and hacking off body parts, right? What if you identified yourself as a one-armed man because you'd been in a, a state of, you were a pirate for 30 years in a previous life? Are they going to cut your arm off so you can be, you know, have your body go with the identity? But besides that, what's actually going on in transgenderism is bleed through. You hear the phrase of, um, uh, you hear where they say, like even um, David Wilcock is always saying, the veil is very thin these days, right? All of this kind of thing. 
okay, if that is actually true, if we were to understand that, that that's a representation of something that it can be physically understood here in reality, and that the veil is indeed thin, then this explains transgenderism, because I'm even now receiving and participating in sending information to the greater doer of which I am but one-twelfth. And on either side of me is a female, so I'm going to get bleed through of female thoughts and, and perceptions and so on, if I'm able to perceive them or not, right? So some people may have a thin, maybe more attuned to a thin veil and maybe being swamped by these impressions that are coming through and, and a bleed through in that at that level. Uh, so then there's all of the other material things that affect those kinds of issues, such as hormones and the bad diet and, you know, the radiation, all of this kind of stuff, because we are physical beings that are, are um, housing the doer in the body, that physical being is susceptible to um, influences within this reality. And while those influences within this reality cannot affect our consciousness, they can't change it in any way, destroy it or anything like that, they nonetheless can uh, have consequences in the larger uh, metaphysical world. I'll give you one brief example. It used to be thought that, and it was uh, exercised in the case of the uh, Cathars and the Knights Templar, uh, it used to be thought that you could cause people to um, suffer, not come back in a reincarnation sense as soon, have a disjointed uh, metempsychosis and these kind of things if you burned them at the stake or if you sliced them in half and, and tore them in bits with horses. Any of these horrific death methods, right, were thought to cause the person that was the victim of that to have a real shock once they got over in metempsychosis and understood themselves to be dead. And if they thought it would add time so that their enemy wouldn't come back. This all goes to another woo-woo subject entirely, which is this battle across time that is going on right this minute and has been ongoing for perhaps millions of years. And so in this battle on, uh, across time, for instance, the Pope at the time uh, in, the, in the King of uh, France. The, um, the Pope at the time of the Cathars was... Um, Gregory? Not Gregory. Um, he's the guy that told the general, kill him all, God will know his own. Right. Yeah. They, they killed a quarter of a million people that weren't even involved in the fight. That's right. It's the greatest slaughter on European soil until the World War II. Right. And they that's, killed what, that's what forced my mother's people to flee yeah. southern France or, or Rouen and head to Portugal and ultimately the Azores and the Caribbean. That's funny because my family was also there in, in, near Toulouse and were driven out at the same time into Germany. So... Um, I have a real connection, actually, with the whole story. I've traveled extensively in the area, and I've gone to many Cathar sites, crawled all the way up to the top of Mount Segur, and um, where the, I was there last cool, year. Yeah. yeah, it was. And <laughs> yeah. uh, they came down on March 12th, and 1207, I think, and they were um, burned at the stake at the bottom of Mount Segur, 250 yeah. of the last Cathars. And uh, they believed in reincarnation, and women could be priests, and um, they were uh, more persuasive than any religion had ever been in Europe. Oh, they were, they were effective. They had a building, a huge base, and that's why they had to go. Yep. But, but the point being at this stage of our discussion here is that if we believe that the veil is thin, then these kind of activities 
uh, alter the vibration as you go through the veil, so to speak, and you suffer on the other side some level of damage as a result, right? And so getting back to this, okay, if we believe that the veil is thin, then one may decide to notice synchronicity. Okay, so I was late, I apologize. Why was I late? I, would, I had just yesterday installed a new version of Prologue on one of my machines, okay, and I was involved in a program, which is not pertinent to this. What is pertinent is that the symbol, something I have never, I haven't looked at this symbol, have had no uh, uh, interaction with this symbol for, let's just say, or in physical presence even, for perhaps three, five, six, seven years, even, right, a long time. What is the symbol? An owl. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, you know, so we see these, exactly. So we see these kind of things, right? And so, so if we think that, okay, the veil is thin here, then, and, and if one, for instance, believed in deep, deep woo and a battle across time, uh, you would have to understand that the battle is not waged by the idea that buddy back and forth in time, there's no time travel except one direction only from right. incarnation to the next incarnation to the next incarnation. And it appears that we can view these incarnations in a serial fashion that appear to link up. And so this makes sense as to, and we know that approximately 2,500 to 3,000 years in, in between each incarnation. And so what do we find? We find Obama, one of the first acts he's, he's doing, going to Egypt as El Presidente to do what? Look at a statue of himself from his last incarnation. So, you know, interesting little connections there. And it was about 3,000 years before that current time that they made that little statue. And so we find that the way in which we think of ourselves as humans uh, as described by the, your local high school and the schools before that, pretty much is bogus, okay? Uh, and it's bogus at so many levels, it, it, it begs the, um, uh, the question of how can it stand, and the only way it can stand is continual manipulation of the illusions around us to get us to think that we're these meat sacks that are somehow... Uh, aware simply because of a uh, 10 billion cells in our brain, et cetera, et cetera. And what they, what the system uh, that is being describing humans uh, breaks it down, it categorizes it, it does is it's a version of the deep state compartmentalization. So the only people that have a right to talk about the body, for instance, are doctors. The only reason, only people that have the right to talk about the mind are psychologists or, or psychiatrists and, and never the twain shall meet and anybody else is entirely out of the power pyramid. You can't talk about any of this kind of stuff with any level of authority because you're not in the club. And we've set up the narrative uh, this way to control the larger narrative about what's actually going on in a general sense. And so the whole narrative is controlled at all of these different levels up and down the um, power pyramid and laterally through all the domain subjects you may care to encounter. And you find that they impress this view and that we have been living with the view that was impressed by the people that won the battle against the Cathars. Okay, but, that, but that's breaking down now as David Icke and Jay have just pointed out. You know, shit's coming out. Shit's yeah. happening. And so uh, we can look for some things, by the way, to be in this battle, for instance, that's been going on, if we think of uh, reality as a, a fight across time, then there are certain skills 
and techniques that would be used. And, we, and if, if I was correct, we should be able to look out and see that these skills and techniques, uh, strategies and tactics uh, would be visible, even if the average person wouldn't connect them to any kind of a warfare uh, going on. We they would see though, that if there was only, if there was warfare only going one direction, which is forward in time, how does a general, for instance, tell someone 1500 years from now, uh, how to react in this war? What would be the mechanism for those kind of carry forwards? Well, might be secret societies, might be notions of alchemy, might be notions of religions, the core of which would be the, you know, the elect, the ones who actually were able to pass on commands across this great distance that we're calling time. And really, if you're fighting a war, there's technically very little difference between the distance of space and the distance of time. You, you have difficulties in fighting a war across each. So if we're correct, then <coughs> as we go forward in time, and we can observe that in the past we've had appearances of these tactics and strategies, then we could also say, well, wait a second. You couldn't, for instance, expect that a gap of, say, 1,200 years would allow humans that are in the social order of, of the current now to react the way that the ones did 1,200 years ago. So those, as, a, as a, someone who's doing this battle across time, those techniques, you, those strategies and tactics you used 1,200 years ago with your secret societies, they're not going to play with the modern world. It's going to be hard to get people to accept the, the old dogmas coming out of the old framework. It's going to get stale over time, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But there's probably some core of that secret society, the, um, the paradigm, but not necessarily the narrative, that you can adapt a new narrative around and still get that same paradigm flowing through. And so we could, for instance, uh, compare, in my opinion, very accurately, uh, modern secret societies against old secret societies and see if indeed old secret societies have been morphed forward in this battle over time, in this alternative view of what it means to be human, where you've got one set of doers that are pissed at these other set and are intent on controlling some level that appears to operate on both sides of the metempsychosis, the death barrier. And so if I'm correct here, then some of these secret societies might have been morphed forward, but we would see that they would still have the central core that they had before. And so we could take a secret society, the most unsecret secret society that we might know, which would be the CIA. And does the CIA do things the way that other secret societies have done? And one could postulate that, well, let's examine the people that are involved in the CIA and see if we can categorize them the way that we would categorize the people in secret societies that go way back through to the Egyptians, the ancient Chinese, etc. And one of the ways that we can all, always categorize secret societies is, is binary fashion, okay, in developing these trees. And the very first binary split in any secret society is going to be between the innocent and the initiate, okay? You'll have people in the societies that are like in the daughters of the revolution, right? But they're not initiates, they're innocents. And in the CIA, you've got receptionists, you've got, you know, the tea cart lady, right? They're innocents. They may have a gun, et cetera, et cetera, but they're not, 
They're not really involved in the thing. And then if we go into the initiate side of the CIA, what is the thing that separates that? If we look into our literature and our, and our movies and films and so on, there is this, this key element that comes into play in the training and the separation and um, selection of a CIA person. And that's when they deliberately kill someone, basically in cold blood. Okay, that's a huge, huge barrier to overcome. You know, my, my father, as, a, as an aside, he used to train people in basic training when he first, first got into the military. And it was very, he could train people to shoot. He said, and that's what he always told me. He said, you can train people to shoot, but you can't train people to be a soldier and you can't train them to kill. And he was, my dad was with the 101st Screaming Eagles, the 101st Airborne. And he did paratroop stuff. And he would say that, you know, uh, it always bugged him when he was a younger officer going into like in his first tour in Vietnam, he had people with him that had not been in Korea that he didn't know if they could kill or not. And he said, and he told me before he left to go to Vietnam then, and I didn't understand it at the time, that, you know, that if he got killed, it was because of someone, one of the 50% that were going to wash out. The 50% would shoot high, they'd shoot in the ground, they're just not going to shoot somebody, right? That's a hard barrier to overcome. And so the well, CIA knows with McNamara's morons. Well, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Plus, there's all of that business, right? Well, this was one of the things that my father, you know, he had a lot of involvement with the CIA in three tours in Vietnam. And there were a couple of the individuals that he that he liked, but nobody that he trusted. Right. Um, well, isn't that what um, supposedly the old man on the mountain converted the Templars to Islam and taught them the secrets of the assassins, and that was that was what he he taught them is how to Right. The PC, by the way, we see the same thing leaking out into the less structured secret societies like MS-13 or any right. of the gangs. Actually, right? you're right. Okay. So, Crips and so, Bloods do the same thing. Exactly. So you see, and it's the old made man business, right? Bloodied. Yep. Right. Okay. So, so. By the way, just as an aside here, because I love where you're, where you're going with this. My, I did a whole uh, investigation of the Son of Sam murders in the late 70s. And they were all different. Each murderer was a different dude. One had black hair, one had blonde hair, one had a beard, one didn't, right? And these were all initiations, some sort of gang initiation. And what people fail to understand is the nature or the way in which this changes the human being, okay? The one who does the act and, and comes out of it the other side is not the same. So, so there are these tells that are all around us in our social order if one cares to look. And, and as I was discussing about the CIA, we find that it goes even deeper than that. That if we look at the initiation side, the, the initiates, we see that there's a structure in there that is every bit the uh, replica, one for one, of all of the old secret societies in the sense that you have uh, novice. Okay, so after you've been initiated, you split further. Okay, you're a novice until you become an adept. What allows you to cross over into becoming an adept is that you can do it and think about it and still function. Okay. If you can do the act, but you can't, you can't stand to think about it and you can just sort of function, you become a drone. That's where they get the hitmen, right? They, because these people at some point are going to be killed off by their own people because they become unstable. And this is a known, known situation. And this is the way it was within the thuggies, for instance, right? You'd get some of those people that would just get too deep into that psychedelic state with uh, eating the hashish, right? And when you eat 
THC, it goes into your liver and it forms this other compound that becomes highly psychoreactive and it builds up over time and it causes psychoses after it's built up over time, unlike smoking it, where it stays as THC in your, in your blood. I wonder so, if that isn't what's going on in the world today. A lot of people eating too much uh, marijuana and going out of their minds. Well, they don't have to. <laughs> the thing is, they're eating other stuff and going out of their minds too, okay, yeah. which is all of the, um, you know, the psychoreactive uh, antidepressants and all of these kinds of things. Because none of those are, we don't have any long-term history of those. We don't know uh, what's going to happen with them. And, uh, you know, until you've gone a couple of generations, you're not even sure if it's going to have a genetic component, right? And now yeah. there's actually some thinking that epigenetically, that the genes of people that take uh, antidepressants, uh, uh, their children have changed. Mm -hmm. And so it's creating a, a mutation in the sense of the gene pool. So it gets really tricky from this point on, and everything is extremely complex and all interwoven. And so we get back to our, our CIA guys, or any gang, but the CIA is really a good uh, descriptor for this. And we see that the novices and drones, it's a dead end. It just stops right there, right? You either graduate from being a novice or you stay as a novice and you're just sort of a drone thereafter. But if you graduate, you go on to become an, an adept, and then you go on to become a master. And we see these people scaling on up right and ultimately at the top i'm convinced that there are the wizards and the wizards would be the people that uh were the popes and the king of france at the time well not the king of france he was basically a stooge he was being told what what he was, uh, needed to do he was not really a mover and shaker he was an implementer yeah king philip yeah exactly yeah and so um uh but throughout all of history you end up with very few wizards and then they are uh, pitted against each other, and that's what we find at this point, okay? That there are several wizards on this planet that are manipulating the various elements of our little time drama, our little little battle. Now, as an aside, when we cast our little movie here and we start writing the plot for this, this battle through time, we have to understand that it's not just humans that are involved in this, okay? That there are indeed other entities these other entities come in at several different layers. And so we, to assign um, emotional role or roles that would have emotions attached to these, to these other entities becomes very difficult. And I didn't want to go down that road at this particular point. So I wanted to stay with just the aspect of being human and how we're going to react all of this. All of this was because of what uh, Yvonne had said in her last two discussions about the traumatic brain injury and these the elements that she had gone through. Because bear in mind that basically what she had had happen to her was that she'd been slammed so hard that she had to redefine herself and reintegrate herself as a personality. So the doer had almost been pushed out of that body, had to come back into that body and sort itself all out again. Now, something to know about being a doer in the body you're, you don't go into your body at the point of birth, okay? It does not happen that any human will, will actually enter a body at the point of birth. The mechanism, briefly, quickly, is that a woman gets, gets pregnant at, and at the point of conception because a soul enters her through her breath. We can think of the soul as being defined as a breath form. So I have the form of life, and what initiates the life is the, the breath, okay? So those are 
inex those are inextricably bound. They can't be separated. My breath can't go off and I still lie, live, and my body can't go off and I still live. They are basically not the same, but they're two sides of the, of the single coin. And so a woman gets pregnant through the soul entering her. And what is triggered at that point is a generic uh, copy of a human that has no relationship at that stage uh, of the conception to the human that it will eventually become. But over time, what happens is the soul merges with the embryo and the soul is a template. And so the soul changes the basic genes and stuff. So that bastard ends up bald, right? And it and, you know, has a big nose, these kind of things. And you carry these things with you from life to life to life because you always reuse the same soul because the soul is the, is the vehicle whereby the karma that accumulates all over your body during life is all wrapped up. And that karma that is not dealt with is taken into the next life to be dealt with. Because the point of life is this, it's real simple. You need to learn what to do and what not to do. Okay, and karma is there to help you with this from life to life. If you kill someone in one life, you will, you will and you don't reconcile that karma, you will have to deal with it in the next life. And you will either be forced to be a victim or you'll be forced to relive it again, or you can put it off and get out of those circumstances and so on and avoid it in that life, but it'll still be waiting for you in the next life because the karma continues forward. It carries forward. The people that are doing the war against time or through time, they know this. They know how the karma works. Okay, the karma, karma is a plural. It's a, it's a word that is a plural in Sanskrit. The individual form of a karma is a karman, and it's a particle, okay? It's a, an energetic particle that accrues with action, which is why they say the word karma translates as action or results of action. And so the karman glues onto you, onto your soul, when you do something that attracts it to it, and you do it energetically like some act that you've got to deal with, right? Or, or you create conditions that cause something to accrue the karma. And you can actually get rid of them as well by doing things that cause them to loosen their grip and not go into the next life. This is also possible. But there's the, these karmen are collectively karma to an individual, but we also have group karma. Where we, where because if we look at it this way, energetically, if I'm standing next to the, the both of you, we're actually sharing parts of our body. Okay, if you're within a few feet of me, my heartbeat overlaps you, my energetic fields overlap you as do, yours does me. And so I will actually become involved at some level with your karma, as everybody does. So if you get into a big crowd, you're involved in the karma of that whole crowd. Right? And this is why we have mass shootings. This is also why we have people that say, no, I'm not getting on that elevator. Or no, I'm not going over to that, that thing. I've got tickets, but I'm just not doing it. And it's because they know they're, they're not in this life, their, their um, breath form, their soul, their manifest life is not uh, attracted to and doesn't want to participate in the karma that their their psychic part of their body is telling them is going to exist in that event in a, in a little while. Okay, and it, it's real simple to understand it when you when you present it that way, but getting it into your brain when the feeling overtakes you, 
and understanding that and not rationalizing it away, that's the real key. That's the tricky part, right? And so there are people as we go through time, as I was saying in this little timeline war, the wizard. So the wizard there, right? Or the adept, let's start at the bottom. The adept, he's a guy who's broken through, he's killed, he's washed away aspects of his, his life as a human. He's taken on new aspects as a worker for the CIA, as an adept. He goes out and he does things and he'll, he'll get a little tingly, okay? Because he's been raised to another level of energy. He's a little hypersensitive about certain things because now that he's killed, he's afraid that, that he will be killed, all right? And this is just the natural law of karma relative to that way. And so you get, so it alters the person. Okay. So this, this is understandable as to how some people become compulsives as CIA agents, for instance, they take out that constant fear and they put it into something. And so you may find that a CIA agent, you know, can't stop himself from doing book reviews. All right. He just can't stop himself one after the other after the other because he's accumulating these book reviews that slice time into little bits. And he sees able to see him a reflection of himself in those book reviews that he posts on Amazon and get back to himself that he's OK. It eliminates some of that anxiety and relieves some of that emotion that is attached to him having done that uh, act that is now placed him in the level of an adept. So an adept doesn't live like a normal person. And can a CIA agent ever retire? Having been altered, could you, it's like saying, well, I'm going to retire from a human now and go off and be a dog. No, it just doesn't work that way, right? And so once you've, once you've shifted yourself, no, there is no retirement. You don't come out of games, you know. Once, once a homie, always a homie. And so the, the adepts and all these people, the adepts, we go to the, from there we go to masters. These are people that have gotten internalized with the level of non-human corruption that they took on when they killed, okay? And they've not only internalized it, they're starting to use it and get some of the power out of it, but it warps their mind. And so they may become rogue, and they're one of the CIA's worst problems, is that these guys know there's no rules because they violated all the rules for the people that used to make the rules, so there aren't any rules, so up yours, I'm gonna do what I want. And so that's the master dilemma they actually refer to it that way as the master dilemma because they figure no one's going to understand it but they have those people that go off and form their own little fiefdoms and do their own little little shtick until they're caught and they have to be dealt with and then there's the wizards on top of that those are people that make it through the master stage without disassociating themselves totally from the organization that made them the way they are and they still retain some interconnection with that association. Only now they want to own it. They want to run the thing, right? And basically, like any victim, they want to do to others what was done to them. Okay, so, so we're looking at the CIA as basically, in spite of all of its propaganda on all the TV shows and stuff, it's an organization of abuse. It's a secret society. And it's a, a self-perpetuating victim cycle all the way through. It, it's corrupt at its very core. Now, can we apply this to the FBI? No, not the same, right? Not the same at all. Can you apply these same kind of things to modern day Freemasons? Up to a certain point, but they don't cross the line anymore, right? They used to have to do, as part of the initiation in the pre-Civil War era, they used oh, to yeah. have to do some really horrific things. I did. And so, so they were, were a different organization at that time. 
And so what we have done is, to a certain extent, is we as a social order have shifted the level of soul corruption. It's not your soul, really, but the karma, the karma taint of the, of the secret society into our institutional organizations. And, and we can suspect that the CIA is but a model for a little mini replica in the Army, Navy, Air Force, ultimately the Space Force, et cetera, right? And so yeah. this is the world in which we find ourselves, where individual humans, not CIA people, basically, if you're aware, you're going to be looking around saying, you know, the only way that this stuff makes sense is if I frame it this particular way, right? And if I don't frame it this way, the whole world's batshit crazy. Yes, I have a, okay. Holy cow. Okay. <laughs> and then I've got four other pages of notes. <laughs> wow. Fantastic. No, this is fantastic. I'm, I'm listening. I'm navigating. I have a question about your feeling about, so going back to, you know, folks that have that instinct, don't go to the nightclub. Don't get on that plane. Don't do this. Don't do that. What about a situation where you have no choice and you know, this instinct keeps coming up and you're like, okay. So for instance, don't get in that car because you're going to get rear-ended. That happened over and over and over. But I knew I had to go through this experience for a certain reason. What do you feel about those experiences? Okay, so it, um, there's basically very little the average human can do under those circumstances. Mm -hmm. okay? Because you're going to find that, that, the, that what you must face will come to your face in this life. All right. But a wizard, for instance, could decide to delay it. All right. Or some of the wizards in the past, and I, I can't speak to how effective it is because I think it would vary on the individual. They've, they've tried to um, game it. Okay. That's the best way to put it. So they would stage the rear end accident. So if a wizard, for instance, had the feeling, and, and I know a guy who operates this way, okay? He's incredibly wealthy. He is uh, this uh, fellow who lives, well, I won't go into that, but I know him. I met him. He was a, I actually went to school with him when I was a kid. And uh, he contacted me like 25 years later, and we're the best of buddies, and we talk every 25 years or so, right? But, but uh, this guy would stand there, and he would feel that, and he would then have his people bring out two cars, and he would get uh, pay someone to be a stunt person or whatever. And he would stand in the presence of one car very close to it while the other car drove like hell and smashed into that car. And thus he would participate in the rear ending accident, but not be involved in it this way. And, and this fellow is, and he's um, skilled enough as a sorcerer. Uh, he's not a wizard. He's a sorcerer. Okay. So he's actually a schizotypical like myself. He had, a, he had an older brother who was a complete paranoid schizophrenic who died young, also early onset like my brother. And so this, this fellow that I know, he's, he's a sorcerer. That's how I refer to these people because he knows it genetically. And he's such a good sorcerer that the last time I checked in with him, which was admittedly a number of years ago, he was worth over 500 million. Uh, so, I mean, he, he knows what he's doing, right? Yeah. Uh, and so um, anyway, though, but so you could, you could do things. And you'll note that um, certain individuals, like Patton, for instance, um, uh, General Patton, would do things in war and in battles specifically 
to avoid search situations like that. And apparently his were successful. Okay, so he knew that he was going to had a potential, he had a feeling he would lose in a particular skirmish or whatever. He would set it up so that one part of the line would be exposed and could be lost. And then he would slam home. And, and, and that's why he was basically successful, because he had those premonitions. Yeah, and, that's, there's moves in chess that uh, do that also. Um, that's weird that you brought up Patton, because I was weird. I was talking to a military dude yesterday and we were talking about Trump, and he said that um, when Trump came to the Pentagon in 2012 or 13 or something, they had somebody do a psychic thing of him, and they came back and said that he was patent reincarnated. And see, I wouldn't buy that simply because the reincarnation of somebody like Patton isn't going to happen for a number of years, okay? It's also too... uh no, it doesn't it doesn't quite work that way. But but also there he couldn't be a reincarnation of Patton because the um, uh, in this life the next reincarnation is female. Okay, this this is invariant. This is what's so so weird. When you get into it, when you really look at some of these things uh, relative to the metempsychoses, we uh, you know how you say you, you find people that are saying we're living in a simulation, mm -hmm. okay, or a computer controlled kind of a thing. That is, that is going to the idea that there's a single cause on the outside of it. That's going to the idea of like monotheism or the um, external savior myth that produces uh, the idea of the Mahadi and the Messiah, okay? That, that we're in a machine and that and if you think about what it means within our head, it means that if we think we're in a machine, then we could figure out the rules. We could game it, right? Because that's what humans really want to do and is game what is around them, control the systems around them, uh, the way um, Baudrillard talks about. And, and uh, you know, uh, so, so that's our next level up in terms of control of our environment, is system control like that. And so, the, but it is, it's in, okay, so it is true that the, it appears mechanistic in terms of how reincarnation and the uh, the life force coming back, the soul works, how enlightenment even works, and so on. All of these things appear to be somewhat mechanistic. Now, it need not involve an external controller in terms of a personality, a big guy with a beard sitting up on a throne or anything like that it, to be mechanistic. It might just be how we our minds are making the reality appear and, and understand it just so that we can work it. But it appears in Violet that uh, when I die, the next version of, of the self will be female, okay? And it will be a slightly different self than, than my I-ness, okay? So that there's 12 bits of I-ness that feel ever so slightly different. And so I know, for instance, when I go to sleep at night and I wake up the next morning that I am me and not someone else. I feel me. The idea of a walk-in is, is basically bullshit, okay? Personalities and those kind of things can change, but the in, integral key and in the, in the soul connection can't, can't alter. You can't lose your soul. You can't trade it. You, can't, you can damage it by doing certain things, but in, in the main, that's very hard to do. So, so the world, to a certain extent, and, and you look at things like in our world today of absolute uh, dominance by the materialistic concept, why does the word soul keep coming up ever again, right? And it's because it goes back so far and it actually represents what's, what's uh, a component of reality, whether or not many people are able to define that component of reality. And it's like we have an affinity for the number 12. 
for one twelfth of all of these things. And we, and it's like, there's just no rhyme or reason as to why these things should occur in a society, especially one that's, that's decimal based. But, but the 12 comes from Babylon, right? It was a hexadecimal system from Babylon. Okay. Uh, hexadecimal though is uh, six, 16. Okay. Okay. And so no, the 12 actually predates that. It goes all the way back to China. All right, so in, okay, so there's some truisms that we have to face here. Um, and a lot of people are just unaware of it because they never, ever, ever really look at our history. China has been the dominant economy on this planet uh, for as long as our current civilization has existed with the exception of the last 100 years. So to expect China not to become the dominant, I mean, we're talking 6,000 years, China was the dominant economy. Then for one brief period of time, because of internal struggles within China, a window opened up. Our collective karma here in the United States allowed us to rise to the level of being the Yankee traders who took over the global economy. And now our day is done. China has passed their, their point of crises and they're reemerging as the dominant nature, dominant economy on this planet. And so the, some of these truisms we can see that are, that are there, um, and, and if you think about them, it alters your decisions on what you're going to do. So in other words, why invest as a, as a North American here, a United States citizen, why invest tons of, of time trying to maintain the status that was a brief little uh, burst in history? Better we should accommodate ourselves to the Chinese as the dominant economy, simply because they got so many people, right? It, it just makes sense. We need to, to adjust to reality in, in my view. But the, you need to think in my view as well, because I'm a schizotypical, I think about reality with a woo bent to it. And so I see myself as a human, but I also see my psychic self, my energetic self, et cetera. And all of these things need to be integrated in so I don't see myself simply as the meat sack. Hmm. And you start looking at our social order at the moment, you see there's some major changes going on. Like you were saying, Jay, just like David Icke had said. Now, I don't actually think David Icke has made himself, put himself at any more risk. Right? Maybe not. Maybe yeah. not. I mean, maybe they want him to say this. Correct. Yeah. And, you know, they, they need certain things to happen at certain times anyway. That's exactly right. And maybe it they need to someone me, to come on out and introduce. Yep. It looks to me like they've decided to let the cat out of the bag. They're going to tell us everything that's going to happen. Uh, they're going to, there's going to be a number of weird laws that we're not going to understand why they're being passed, but they're going to be passed. One is going to be outlawing of eating of meat. That's one of the laws that has to be passed. Um, they're, going to, they're going to create a world court, and everything's going to go be adjudicated through the world court. And one of the main things that laws that will be followed is you can't criticize them. That's the first rule of law. <laughs> Right, but right. I did want to get back to one thing, which I've always been kind of fascinated about. I think it's in the, I think it's in the uh, cathedral um, in uh, Bern or maybe in Toulouse. I can't remember, but in one of those cathedrals is a statue, Fulconelli, the alchemist uh, points it out. And when you walk in, it's a old man. The statue is an old man standing with a cloak on, a long beard, you know, like a uh, medieval old man with a cane. Right, right the staff. Uh, sure, sure. Actually, I've seen around the statue. The back half is a young woman, right? Right. And um, I'm trying to think. There's one other reference to this. Oh, when um, 
when uh, Falconelli's uh, uh, student went to the castle, a la the Harry Potter story, uh, he was picked up at a train station, taken to a castle in the Pyrenees, where they were all dressed in medieval clothing and practicing alchemy. This is what he says. And he met Falconelli. And Falconelli, who was 80 when he last saw him, was now, get ready for it, <laughs> young woman. Yep, yep. Yep. <laughs> yep. Well, see, this is, okay, so go. if we go back to the absolute core of um, uh, information that predates uh, the Nagamadi, predates Gnosticism defined that way, but was resurrected by Hypatia before her death, Bear in mind, she was killed in a gruesome fashion, and they Skeletal. scraped the flesh off her bones, and then shells. with with shells, and then burned her bones. They were they were that upset with her, right? Great movie uh, about her. I can't remember the name of, but I'll remember it. Okay, it about the, ten years ago. The the thing about the the Gnostics uh, is that they were pan cultural. Okay, so the Gnostics were, uh, they're Gnostics in China, Indonesia, wherever you happen to, to run across them. They all share this common thread of things. And they actually, Gnosticism uh, provides the central, and it's, I'm using this word deliberately as a joke, the central pillar to Freemasonry. Okay, yes, it does. okay because, because we have within Freemasonry in terms of symbology, we have uh, Joachim and Boaz, right? The two pillars. Well, two what are pillars. the two? And the two pillars in Gnosticism are represented as half pillars, sliced, so that they can be joined. Okay, and this this whole thing relates to the idea of the perfection of the human. So, in this life, in this reality, we're in a place called the materium, where matter actually exists. Okay, where we perceive matter. This place is necessary that we learn what to do and what not to do through experience. Mm -hmm. This experience, the point of that experience, the point of all of this, repeatedly, ad infinitum, millions of damn times, is the perfection of the human. Okay, this is held in all religions, that you perfect yourself through work, through uh, observances, through charity, through any of these different mechanisms, and you shall go to heaven, okay? Let me tell you right now that when you die, you go to heaven, and you're there right this moment because that's where the greater part of you is. And it's perpetual, you're never out of heaven, you never suffer there, and it's a, a perfect heaven for you, which also means it's individual. No other people in your heaven couldn't possibly be this way because your heaven would be uh, disrupted by their discordant emotions or they're having to go through stuff. But also, simultaneously, you are in hell. But hell is not as we understand it. Hell is the place where the soul goes, not the consciousness. The soul is not consciousness. It's, not, it's intelligent and conscious only of its task, not of itself, okay? So um, uh, my car is not conscious at all. It has no understanding whatsoever. But an earthworm has consciousness, but not consciousness of itself as an earthworm, only consciousness of its task to burrow and find something to eat. Burrow, find something to eat. So there's a big difference. So consciousness is perpetual, unchanging, constant. But conscious, being conscious of something, there's an infinite degree of it. Okay, so 
Uh, this is where it gets really complicated and you start adding on layers of these complexities. But the idea is the perfection of human form over time to the point where you, uh, just like in 2001, you become something that's greater than human, not human. You merge the male and the female into a perfect body uh, that is both and neither gender. And you have both and neither gender minds. And it's not an either or, it's a both and situation from that point forward. And then you go on to your destiny, which is greater than your human uh, task of learning to be that larger being. And that's the point of all of this, right? And so the people that are warring across time, and so let me just state that that would be like harmony with the force, that view, all right? That May view I suggest that, that the war across time is between one faction, um, let me get this straight so I do it, one faction who wants all humans that have the ability to achieve perfection and another faction who believes that that perfection is only meant for them. Correct. Yep. And they have a plan and their plan is to take over reality as it forms at the materium, as it forms itself within the metempsychoses. I'm going to have to read that book, I guess. Yeah. Uh, so, so, their plan and they do things, they have strategy and tactics like burning people alive and tearing them in half with horses that they putting think, airplanes into buildings. Exactly. That's more of the group level. Okay. But on an individual level, which is the way they used to have to operate because they could only kill them one at a time. Uh, back then they developed techniques that they thought caused their enemies to be thrown further out uh, because you, you actually, okay. So, um, it is true that you can do things that cause your entry into the metempsychoses to cause you problems. I use that word advisedly in your, in your metempsychoses. And so if you're burned alive at the stake, the shock is so emotionally great that going into the metempsychoses in terms of our time here on earth, it may indeed lengthen the period of time that you're in what used to be called limbo as you adjust to this idea of being dead, right? And going into You're the rest of the medicine. At the stake would uh, destroy your uh, ka. So one of your aspects of the Egyptian spiritual body was the ka is the spirit attached to the physical body. And so you you want to have a, a time period where it's uh, where your ka deteriorates and not have it go quickly. And that's and so um, burning. Well, Okay, that's the soul aspect of it, though, okay? So the Ka, as far as the Egyptians understood it, was the soul attaching or the breath form attaching right. to the form itself. That's now, right. The soul actually has to go through hell, which is a burning process where the karma that's on you gets basically categorized into eh, little shit, and then stuff you got to carry forward, right? right. And the stuff you got to carry forward is is reattached to the soul after the soul burns off everything else but the burning process within the the hell also is a very positive thing for you because it gives you intuition and what it does is the memories that are uploaded to your greater self of this life which are then dealt with in metempsychoses are reacted in and distilled in an alchemical sense down to a thick syrupy mass of a single drop 
And that single drop is given to your next life. And so all of those memories form your intuition. And so anybody comes back to me and says, oh, hey, I just got age regressed or, or had a hypnosis regression thing in my past life, I was so-and-so. It's like, dude, you're fooling yourself. I don't have time for this, right? You're just going down to some kind of imagination thing because you can't have any memories ever show up in any form in this life ever. And the reason you can't is because memory is based through an emotion kind of a thing and is tied to emotions. You don't have any memories in your, that you're able to draw up that do not have an emotion associated with them, that you're bland with, okay? You just don't have memories that way. And in fact, the stronger the emotion, the sharper the memory, the longer it lasts. And if you had a memory come from a past life, it would affect your body the same way as a memory in this life. And you know that if you're walking down the street and there's a sudden bang, and I'm directing this at, at Yvonne specifically, there's a sudden bang of two cars colliding. For that brief instant, you are instantly back there and your body reacts simply because of a memory. Yeah. Let Imagine me. what it would be like if, if you were, you know, in a previous life had been killed by, uh, in battle because a horse kicked you as it was dying. Anytime you came around a horse, your body would react and stuff can't have that you know the mechanism doesn't allow it to work okay so hold on i gotta go back here for a second okay what you just said is so powerful and it's in it affects a lot of people and it goes also with that state that um ptsd label right and then uh so let me explain this to you cliff and jay uh so the first re-render i was re-rendered twice the first re-render I had ES, I get this ESP stuff and I knew I was going to get hit. I actually bought a different car because I knew this was going to happen. I get hit, go through the process, but I was like, I, there was a sense of knowing this isn't, that it didn't happen correctly. It wasn't complete. It wasn't complete. complete. Exactly. exactly. Two years later, get the same ESP thing. Okay. Got it. I get it. It's going to happen. I had a, another car <laughs> uh, anyhow and then it happens that and 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 it was that breath out and i'm gonna say the breath out the vortex out in that experience i there was a knowing then okay got it this is what was supposed to occur the first time and i'm not saying i'm a wizard i'm not claiming anything going back to what you were saying but it's interesting these experiences and life is about experiences uh, I, uh, again, going back to what we've said before, I don't think we come in here. I feel we don't come here broken. We come here pretty, pretty beautiful. And these experiences, which this was for me, but when you're talking and you say that impact, so that memory, that PTSD label, it does the, even you doing that verbally, the linguistics of talking about it, I can go right there. I can but go that's, right that's why I did that. That's why yeah, I explicitly said your name so that we could deal with it on the surface area and it wasn't yep. unconscious, right? Yep. Also, yep. To, your, to your point, we come here and based on the number of lives you've had and the, how you've handled your karma, you may come here fairly well loaded, okay? You may come here with good, good stuff. These are called cities, S-I-D-D-H-I by the Hindus, okay? Uh -huh. These are abilities, they're not like superpowers or anything, but some of them verge on superpowers because some people are born with um, uh, clairvoyance, clairaudience, you know, all of the various things that affect the smells or affect the, the uh, 
the, the body, especially those parts of the brain, eyes and smell that involve more of the brain than the rest of it, you come with powers relative to those that are tied to this intuition process. So, so you actually do bring things to this life, including talents, skills. So you see people that are, are two years old and they've got that violin and they're just going to town and you play a song to them once and they're riffing off of it, you know? And yet you got people like myself that are basically say what <laughs> when it comes to music, you know? And so, so as we separate, as these, as we progress along, our ability to deal with all of these frequencies, which is all, it's all energy. It's all relationship of conscious understanding, experiencing a conscious thing within the consciousness, which can't be altered. As we know, you can be killed and your consciousness persists and it comes back. And so it's a, it's a funny, strange kind of a planet. And we got some weird stuff going on here. And I think presciently, perfectly presciently, we have David Icke's book pointing out some of the more obvious things that are going to be showing up here in the near future. Okay, so th these books don't come out at this time. Um, uh, at happenstance. Nothing in this planet ha is, is happenstance, like as we know from, from uh, Groovy's statement there, right? She didn't complete that karma and so had to do it. And what it did, one of the things it did was it brought you where you are right this moment, put you on that path. Apparently, universe has decided that you're going to be on this path or be offered this path. And whether you make it to that path is another aspect of this, okay? So, uh, but, well, I would say is that <clears throat> what appears to be happening right now, I guess we should be lucky to be living in it, is that we are actually beginning to identify who's who and what's what and the larger war that's been going on for a long, long time. And it appears to be still fought by the same exact people. And that's why I brought up that uh, I described his book as what he's doing is being a little, almost a little bit Christ-like in its sacrificial aspects of it because it's like the same people. <laughs> Isn't it though? <laughs> it's the same old gang, you know? Yes. Yeah. And it's, it's uncanny. And then, then you look at like the book of Revelation and it actually predicts it and I identifies it. And we know that was written 2000 years ago. Okay. But, okay. But say, uh, all right, now we've got to discount a lot of this shit though, right? So we have to discount as shit the Bible in English. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, I, I, I don't, I don't know. I, I, the only thing I'm talking about is the actual story of Jesus. Okay. Okay. Right. Because the old Testament and all of that, you know, the translation was just totally bogus. Constantine revoked. Right. Right. It's like, 90 so, of it anyway. but nonetheless, your point is, is actually accurate. Extremely accurate. It's the same old bastards doing the same yeah. kind of battles again. They are going across time and the rest of us are basically, um, uh, NPCs, right? Uh, Non-player yep. characters in yeah. there, right? And that's why they don't really care about, um, uh, you know, sending out, you know, that division over there to get slaughtered. Doesn't matter to them. These are not really uh, active players in the game. And so uh, uh, their understanding is, as you're, as you're saying, is quite um, elitist or isolationist or, you know, arrogant or whatever. But yeah. we also know, we also know that it's, it's curious that here we are in the age of Aquarius, the age of knowledge, 
the only one of the 12 astrological symbols that has a human represented in it, which was usually a man, although recently had been made to be female, uh, but in ancient times was male. We're in the age of Aquarius, the bringing forth of knowledge, right? Well, in the age of Aquarius back when, uh, in the first kind of, of reference to this sort of thing, because bear in mind, each of these cycles repeats. So every 26,000 years, you're going to go through these, these great years, through these various different 72-year uh, cycles and so on. Um, that those wars existed back then, and we're seeing the same uh, wars happening all over again. So Hypatia and the Gnostics, right? Those battles in Greece are representative of the same kind of things that are going on right this minute, and we're seeing the same forces involved. So in, if we were to report that today and be a, a YouTuber, we could come on in here and we could say, and we're just recreating this instance, we could say that Hypatia was killed by a rampaging group of Antifa. So we're seeing the same kind of battles play out again all over again, right? And, and a lot of it is, is cyclic. And I actually think that we're dealing with these people that are going through time. And they're, one of the goals of this group is to control the material, to actually alter the material right. so that other people don't have um, uh, the karmic expressions that they should or could or may have. And so they're trying to basically game the whole material or universe system. Now, I define universe not as stars and all of that. To me, universe is the entire collection of human experience across time. Mm -hmm. Okay. So everybody participates equally because all human experience is, is equal at that level. And so we're in a, in a weird kind of a situation where the material, where all the matter is happening, may actually be uh, hijacked. It might be. It is being hijacked. I think that's what's going on, and I think that the um, this group needs to have the idea of superiority, and so what they're doing is they're wiping out history where anything can be shown to be more superior in the past to what they can present in the in the in the present, and so. I'm actually predicting that uh, um, Bach will be wiped off out of the memory, Beethoven, uh, Mozart, Shakespeare. You're going to actually see these cultural idioms slowly deteriorate or changed so that their pedigree is different. That could also be. But they can't have anything that is more superior in the past than what they can do now. And so that's why they've deteriorated the culture because it's easy to be better than our deteriorated culture. Right. And furthermore, what I believe is going to happen is, is when they do this thing that they're going to do, which is a physical thing, a takeover of the material, right? Completely 100%. They're suddenly going to go, Oh, our genius scientists have invented free energy. Oh, our genius scientists have invented anti-gravity. And then we're going to see it. And it's all going to be because of this incredible group and how superior. I don't think it's going to play out that way. And the reason That's their plan. That, that may indeed be the plan, and it never, ever works out, right? Just like uh, Pike It hasn't said. worked out so far. <laughs> right, right. <And laughs> they've been Pike's, trying it for a long time. They've been trying for a long time, World War One, World War Two, World War Three. Yep. you know, Pike and all of that and so on. But yep. there's, some, there's some weird changes going on. And, uh, and universe, okay, so 
they're trying to game the material. And so they're they trying are. to alter the game so that they have an unfair advantage. Mm -hmm. So this is like gamer gate at a giant level, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but, oh, uh, but beyond that, they're never successful in universe. That is to say, whatever mechanism uh, that operates the materium uh, appears to be conscious of everything going on in the materium. That's right. And, and, and will not allow a slippery slope. Correct. And it's and exactly it what this book is. It's the not allowing of the slippery slope. Right. Well, I've got others, though. In China right now, for instance. Okay, so if we were to ever have that kind of a world, it must involve China and India. Absolutely. In okay. fact, China's a linchpin. Right. Well, China has already lost to them. Mm. And I know this right now because the Chinese are having a cultural revolution again. Only this cultural revolution is nonviolent. It's internal. It's spreading like a disease. And it's yep. going back to ancient Chinese history. And the Chinese are trying to re-identify themselves and rethink of themselves as Chinese in a Chinese-dominated world that is not our modern reality. And so you see lots and lots and lots of young Chinese people. True, it's still a fringe element. There's probably less than 1%, oh, probably even less than 1% of 1% of their population that's involved in this. But you've got young Chinese people dressing in traditional Chinese garb from several hundred years back, six and 700 years back. And they're doing things the way that the Chinese used to do. And they're going back to that other style of thinking, which is not harmonious with the bastards that want to take over this and they're getting really pissed about it in China but they can't do anything about it because of the way in which it's spreading as this grassroots kind of a deal and we'll get there in this country and it and it happens the universe always sticks in some you know wooden shoe in the cog at the appropriate point right something to break and cause this to they go and, yeah and that's what's happening now so, well, the New World Order is definitely, they tried to bring China in 35 years ago, and they brought them in, and then it seems now they're doing a rethink, <laughs> isolated through Trump, and right. they're probably spreading the pig disease and all the other things uh, that are going on. That's probably our guys, I hate to say it, but it's probably our guys doing that. And um, so what China does next is really going to decide the future. That's the curious point right there, okay, because this is one of the things I've been uh, watching is that, I'm, you know, I speak a little Russian, I've got some Russian buddies, I got some American friends of mine that have retired in Russia. It's very, very safe, no GMO foods, you know, your money goes yeah, a long yeah. way, a lot of different reasons to do so. Anyway, though, but the, the, the game is afoot, okay, that's really what's happening. So, in my, in my work with uh, the predictive linguistics, there was always this um, uh, building level of tension that appeared in 2019 that, that seemed to hold through 2020, 24, somewhere in there, right? In those four year period of time. Yep. And, and within this period of time, there was this major shift that was going to occur that uh, I, I labeled as sci-fi world. So that sci-fi world was not a single day it wasn't like 9 11 or anything like that it was something we would come out when we're in 2025 we'll turn around and look back and say oh damn you know where'd the floating anti-gravity boats come from and all of this kind of thing but i don't see it as as gifts from the elite kind of a deal right what actually is going on is that we ha are having gradual disclosure 
Okay. And gradual disclosure is necessary because you can't dump all of this stuff on the society yeah. or you'll have nations going to war with each other. That's right. Because Charles McKenna always said it was going to be a serious problem. They had to do it gradually. They had to do it gradually. And it's going to yeah. take them about 18 years to do the whole yeah. process. And the first three or four years are the most disruptive as, as they, we get over that. Okay. So, Oh, and also the Chinese don't care, by the way, about disclosure. They're going to go do it anyway. <laughs> I know, I know, I know, I know. And they've got two national magazines paid yeah. for by the, uh, by the government that circulate only on, on UFOs, aliens, and, yeah. and strange technologies. And it is those two magazines are some of the, I think they are perhaps, because they're both produced by the same outfit, I think they're the largest circulation paper magazine on the planet today. Okay. I know a businessman who goes to China. He told me the Chinese wealthy people, all they do is talk about uh, American Freemasons and secret societies and trying to take over China and they're not going to let it happen. And yeah. it's like, yeah. really? He said, yeah. no, it's normal. He says, they talk about it all the time. We never talk about it, but they talk about it all the time. Yeah. And that's, and this, we're seeing this expression come out in the people in Hong Kong, right? Yes. I got a lot of Chinese guys that follow me and I'd done a lot of business with software and stuff in Japan and China back in the day before China became the producer. And, and I've, uh, and in, uh, I've got Chinese connections and they're telling me exactly that same thing, that a lot of the stuff going on in Hong Kong now, uh, when the protesters are, you know, kicking back and having some, um, you know, dim sum and a, and a, and a bihau, uh, after the long, hard day is that they're talking about aliens. They're talking about United States interference. They're talking about secret societies controlling the United States, trying to control China. They're talking about Freemasons in Hong Kong, you know, and the British connections and all of this kind of stuff. And of course, we know the egregious nature of the British. You know, there's only two, two nations on the planet they haven't in, in, ever invaded. And it, they just basically haven't gotten around to it yet. You know, that kind of thing. Yeah. But but we're at a very interesting period of time over these next three or four years relative to all of this. And we'll see a lot of it play out. I actually think they've lost. Okay. I think that the people that wanted to control and take over the materium have lost this, this latest round because of a convergence of factors and because universe has um, weighted the uh, nature. It, basically the materium in my viewpoint is self-protective. It's just as the earth is a self-regulating system, not an object floating in space. Uh, I think the materium is a self-protecting, um, self-aware, conscious to some extent, and composed of consciousness, uh, substance, so to speak, right? So it's participating in this because it doesn't I was told that on an on a extremely high dose of uh, dimethyltryptamine, I was told that that the earth has a consciousness and it watches itself and, and it uses you certain humans to do things like maybe David Icke, who knows, and uh, to get things done. Or Groovy Bean. Okay, I wanted to bring this back. We need to, to break at some point, but I wanted to bring this back to her because of her statement about the car wrecks and the path, okay? Mm -hmm. so, so there's this weird uh, academic writer uh, way in the past, and I've met him. I don't, maybe you've met him too, uh, Kurt Vonnegut? Oh, yeah. I know Kurt Vonnegut. Okay. So Vonnegut has this idea. He's dead uh, now. But... Yeah. He had this idea that came to him in what uh, New Age guys might call a download session. Okay. <clears throat> and the idea was that universe, and, and he described, what he described as universe, I call the materium, where matter is. Okay. The mechanism that our lives are, are actually playing out in. Yeah. The screen upon which we, we act. 
okay, Vonnegut had this idea that universe actually does yes. fa favor, okay, I'm going to use that word, okay, very deliberately. It favors certain people as organizing principles. I right? would agree with that. Okay, and so it allows you, through your karma, to decide to opt in and, and therefore choose yourself to be that person around which universe organizes itself. So as an instance, you know, Groovy didn't have the option of getting hit by the car in her understanding. And that was mm -hmm. what set her on this path. And now she's part of this self-organizing collective subset of universe, right? right? David Icke did have that option. If he had been aware at the time, he could have said, oh, I had this Kundalini experience. I'm going to shut the hell up about it, not tell anybody. <laughs> Right. Yeah, I'm not going to wear that. You know, or, or turquoise uh, jumpsuits and, and, you know, go on TV, that kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so he had that option. But, of course, his mind, he couldn't think that way at the time that it occurred because your mind is swamped. The body mind, the intellect, is swamped by the uh, experience itself. So mm -hmm. here we are as perfect human beings. So let me go back to that idea that Joachim and Boaz in the um, – the two pillars joining, the male and female becoming the perfect human body all fused together and stuff. This can only happen if we exist as the perfect human body already. And we know that we do as the doer. Okay, if, if the, when the doer decides to take a break and not incarnate, it's in a perfect state of harmony. And so if we're going to ever express that, we must be that way already at, at some level in the process of, of achieving it. We cannot express that which can't exist. That's right. Okay, that's so, what the Gnostics thought was that we were we arrived here perfect, and that we actually become imperfect due to the society and the teachers and all the more, BS. Okay, it's more basic than that, though. Okay, I think that's misinterpretation of some of the stuff that Gnostics said because I think that we lose that we become subsumed in the other bodies. So, getting back to the nature of humans, we have the knower and we have the uh, the uh, thinker at our various high, very highest level. Halfway between them and us as the doer is rightness and reason, okay, where you know what the right thing is, right? Whether you do yep. it or not, you know, okay, so you have rightness and reason, conscience, okay? And then there's the doer in the body. The doer in the body is actually composed of three minds, okay? There's the intellect, which is the body mind. And you know the feeling when you're in the body mind, and, and all three of us have shared that. When you're near death, when the body is traumatized, you can't think about two other aspects that you can think about constantly, desire or feeling. Mm -hmm. And I don't mean feeling in the sense of right. sensation. I mean emotion, right? Okay, so, uh, so we have three minds. They're actually three separate minds. And this is where psychiatry has gone wonky. This is where psychologists have gone wonky. In the Vedic text, they talk about the seven minds, the seven minds. That's why seven is a lucky number, because we understand this. There's the four minds that are outside of the body, and then there's the three minds that are in, or in the body. And those three minds are the body mind, the intellect, your desire mind, and the desire mind is conducted through and lives, so to speak, in your blood. And this is why we say that, oh, he's got his blood up, he's head up, he's hot-blooded, okay? Usually applied to males. Okay, because men live in desire more than women. Women That's live true. in feeling, expression, the actual right. experience of it, right? There's a subtlety, um, uh, an experience of that that males usually cannot grasp. I would agree with that. Okay, so in that sense, you know, 
uh, it's often been described that uh, male and female are the string in the wind blowing across the string. Okay. And so uh, they can each appreciate each other, but they can never experience what it is to be the other. And so, so there is this very interesting nature between the, the, a male and the female and how we end up as we are in, in a, our perfected body that has been in our perfected mind that's been shattered by the experience of being here by and it's been trapped it's been addicted to sensation because on the other side of death i can tell you this as a fact because i've been there there is no sensation there's emotion without sensation and that's an entirely weird thing to try and conceive of, okay? But there's no body to have any sensation in. And so that's why we come back here. That's why this is the only possible school for the nature of what we are, or what we call in the materium, human. What do we call ourselves when we're on the other side? I can't say. By the way, some people, and this was my, this was one of the things that got me, is that my mind is captivated by three just like Tesla, okay, yep. the three and the six and the nine, and I understand that. Yeah. And that was one of the captivations. That's one of the cities that was laid on me was numeracy at a particular level. Yeah, I'm completely obsessed with three, six, and nine, and all of the um, <coughs> uh, prime numbers, too. Yeah. I, I keep thinking about, you know, one of the, this is, this may sound a little silly, however, one of the nursery rooms that a lot of people sing to their children is row, row, row your boat gently down the stream. stream. Merrily, merrily, merrily. Life is but a dream. The boat is your vessel, but I choose not to go blindly. I don't, I'm, I choose not to go in the dream. I'm choosing to deal with what is on the path and these experiences. But I find that nursery rhyme very crucial into the programming of what we're singing to our children from the get-go. And all the people so, around us. It's a very tough right? road you've chosen, right? Okay. Yeah. Especially, especially we, we don't see many women choosing uh, proportionately that, that role anymore. It used to not be that way. In our past lives, women participated more at this level. And you'll note within Gnosticism, easily half or better of the, uh, of the hierarchy was, was female. And the right. great great thinkers were like Hypatia, they were also female. So, That's right. But it's a rough path and there's no support in our life for this, right? No, it is a rough path, but uh, the rewards are incredible, so. Well, no, the reward is understanding your suffering. Understanding. You still gotta suffer. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think I think that's cool, Jay. I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm just saying to those people that watch us on a casual level, they're just not. Right. And then I've got all of the notes about where this what this leads us to in terms of our society over these next few years. What are we going to have happen? Mm. What are the new roles that are people are going to to take on as we go through this this five or six year shift? And why is the you know and and it's not why but rather how the uh, the weather the climate this the sun and all this other stuff is going to participate? But isn't it very curious that we have? And I've always said they've been directly related, but we have all of this stirring of emotion just at the same time that we have the sun being walking. Let me ask yeah. you something really quick though, going sure. back to the word emotion and men and emotions. 
And going back to, do you feel, because I've noticed this, that even with you, Cliff, that you recently did a video where you said, I'm not going to show any emotion, but the whole video was emotion. Where does the, how do we get back to men being okay with, with showing that emotion? Well, see, there's, there's the problem. See, I suffer it greatly because I'm a schizotypical, right? I drowned in emotion because my vagus nervous system is mm -hmm. keyed to pick it up, my own and those people around me. Um, the social order, okay, well, here's, I'll tell you, it's going to be secret societies because the social order is going to be grasped and attempted to be molded, as Jay said, by the guys who want to change the materium, as I said, okay? Mm -hmm. Now, the, as they do that, humans are going to react, just as we react to the censorship on YouTube by changing our language uh, so that we can get our goals met around their system. There right. will be, we will invent a system that will return us back to, to that. Now, we're seeing aspects of it. One of the things that will get a man to break into his emotion and understand it, psychedelics. Well, psychedelics are popping up all around the planet again, right? Mm -hmm. uh, whereas there's these like hiatuses that we go through. And the Mushrooms are legal in Denver. Yeah, and see, we're getting to the point where, where people will be busting out and then we'll have to form uh, structures that will allow us to initiate the new ones and bring them into the system. So we'll come up with secret societies, whether we call them that or not. Right? Right. Maybe it'll be shroom clubs or, you know, um, um, mescaline cafes for all I know. Mm. And you'll go there for a guided experience by someone who knows what they're doing. And there'll be the, all of this kind of stuff because we have to recreate what used to exist in our past mm -hmm. in terms of social structure under a new form. And so we're seeing a social breakdown, but that it's only because we're in the period of crises now that most people can't see that what uh, is going to replace it is already being built now. Well, let's get back to emotion for a second there too, okay? Because if we look at it at a linguistic level, yeah. all of, uh, 60% of English and 60% of German and French and all these others goes back to Sanskrit. And there's certain rules within Sanskrit, right? And so emote is the active uh, aspect of the emotion. So you are feeling an emotion, but you emote, you express the mote, the M-O-T, okay? Mm -hmm. E is, is that uh, from, it, it even went into um, Greek from uh, Sanskrit. The E character there means to externalize, mm -hmm. to throw it out externalized. Just like um, A means to negate. So himsa is harm. Ahimsa means do no harm. Right. Okay, so typical e and atypical. Correct. And we have, an, we have an E typical here in the sense that E means to express out. And we see it in terms of emotion is you're emoting, you're getting it out of you, you're breathing up. And what is mote? Mote is a frequency. Okay, so a mote and note derived from the same um, Sanskrit understanding, the same language, which also went over to uh, Pali and Tamil. So it came back to us a couple of different ways. And in all languages that are not connected to Sanskrit, such as those North American languages that the indigenous people have and the Australian indigenous people and the Polynesians, we all have this same concept that an emotion is the same at, at its core, comes from the same word as singing. Okay, so 
And, and so the Polynesians sing their emotions. They, they sing out everything, right? And their language is filled with the syllabacy of singing. And, that, and their language is just unique in that regard, but it goes to, has the same concept that comes back that ties these two things together. That the moat that you are feeling, that we call an emotion, is a frequency. That you can express that frequency. The Polynesians chose to do it in a singing fashion. Which, you know, good for me, I wasn't born Polynesian because I can't sing your shit. <laughs> so, so anyway, though, but, but so we're, we're back to this level of understanding. I like going all the way back as far as I can in words to see what other humans used to think about that word that I'm using today and how it, what it meant to them. There's also the, the technique I used to do a conscious, lucid, aware, and retentive visit to the land of the dead is called the moat in one's eye. Or if you're in the curandero world of the Mexican, it's called the, the moat in God's eye. Mm -hmm. Okay, and you, and you, you do it. It's a, basically a meditation on a specific frequency that's augmented with a micro dosing of psychedelics and you're able to cross the death barrier. And you're able to cross the death barrier consciously and you can do these these techniques that allow your mind to go over there and look and see things and then come back and bring those things back to you. It's not like a regular psychedelic journey. And I don't know how long that technique has been uh, there, but I found it written about in Chinese, ancient Chinese, and, and written about in the Vedas. And yet here it is most accurately described in my modern world by the Mexican curanderos who do it all the time. It's interesting because I feel like I can go back to that death. I can go back to that moment really easily. I can go right there. And it's, it's an interesting in-between. I call it the in-between. And, uh, you know, speaking about language, when my language was, when my voice talking was taken away with the brain injury, I'm thinking back to my emotes and how I was trying to communicate just with my expression and my emotions. But it was interesting because the doctors, the therapists, nobody could pick up on it because we've been so desensitized at how to look at people and under feel, understand, use your eyes, those senses of vision again to, to understand what the emotion was, but it didn't matter. They just couldn't pick up on it. So I ended up having to use a keyboard in the uh, brain trauma rehab. Yeah. That's kind of interesting, yeah. But you see how, so this, this frames um, my reality is, is my understanding and experience of emotion, especially as a schizotypical, okay? Because as a schizotypical, I am an empath. Uh -huh. I cannot help but feel the emotions of the people around me, which is why I'm self-isolating. I can't be in, in crowds, and I suffer that greatly, you know, because you get me around large crowds and I'm just a jittery fool because I'm picking it up from everybody and I just cannot handle it unless I do something to, you know, basically sedate myself and I don't want to go through life that way. More alike in that way. I had, when I, when I went to the first conference I went to after the TBI, I had to sit, <laughs> I had to sit way away from everybody and I ended up crying and having these emotions and it's part of that process and what, you know, what, I would like to give you the chance again to do, explain to folks what that, um, what you had said before in a prior video about your, and I can't say it correctly, schizo, that, that type. Schizotypical. Schizotypical. Please sure. explain to the crowd again okay. what that is. Right. Okay. So, so the, um, 
it was decided uh, by uh, the World Health Organization that there needed to be an investigation into schizophrenia. And uh, one way to do this was to go in and survey these isolated populations. The isolated populations chosen were uh, uh, Denmark, um, uh, uh, Iceland, and Finland. And uh, the most concrete stuff they got was out of Denmark because they had big, uh, actually a big population of schizophrenics. And they found out something there, that, that all schizophrenics will have in their family, if there's more than one uh, child, then the other ch children, no matter how many of them there are, will be what is called a schizotypical, which is that we have this, the genes for schizophrenia and we just express it to a lesser degree than the active schizophrenic who cannot be in society. Schizotypicals are those people that are naturally shaman, okay? Male or female, okay? As a female, they would probably call them a witch or something. These are, these are people that live in that world of, uh, of overwhelming emotion. We can see auras, all of this kind of weird shit. It drives you batshit crazy to go to be a, uh, in my age group, for instance, and, and go to a concert the first time with 50,000 people and, and barely make it out alive just because of the emotional stimulation and you have no idea what's happening to you or what's going on. The schizophrenia is a disease that is uh, intensely um, affected by uh, vitamin levels and diet and so forth. And uh, schizophrenics are, are driven to self-medicate to try and understand what's going on to them. Now, the actual disease of schizophrenia is very simple. The disease, the part that affects their mind, is the production of adrenochrome, which is the uh, oxidate, uh, oxidized version of adrenaline. Okay, A paranoid schizophrenic is constantly producing adrenaline, and their system is flooded with adrenaline because they're scared all the time and they don't understand why they are scared, and that even makes them more scared. And so at some point, your regular sympathetic, parasympathetic nervous system can no longer cope with the demands for the energy, and the adrenal system kicks in, and you're constantly producing adrenaline. And the adrenaline oxidizes as it's used up and through the liver, and it forms this substance called adrenochrome. And adrenochrome is the most powerful psychedelic on this planet, and it can actually affect what's known as the Shoshona, the connection between yourself and your higher uh, higher, you know, the greater dimensions that are you, uh, the knower and the thinker, et cetera. And so that's what schizophrenia is. And schizophrenics don't have an easy life. There's some understanding that I have now that the schizophrenics come from channelers. So people that are incredibly channeling in this life will be schizophrenics in their next life. And, or it might take two lives, but they'll get to the point where they're schizophrenic. And the, the siblings of schizophrenics uh, have a different karma, but they must undergo many of the same trials and tribulations of the active schizophrenics. Now, I'm extremely atypical, okay, because usually schizophrenic or schizotypicals are the middle child or later. I'm the firstborn. Usually in the, those circumstances, the schizophrenia is most acute. That may indeed have been my condition throughout my early life. And it may have onset around eight years old, which was extremely young for me to get, for anybody to get schizophrenia. Usually it comes on males earliest, and they're in late 20s through their mid 30s, or uh, the very late 30s and through mid 40s. That's when schizophrenia usually hits you. It can hit, as, as it did with my brother, as young as the mid teens, but that's rare. 
and even much rarer to get it uh, younger than that. But it's also exceptionally rare for a firstborn to be a schizotypical. Uh, my brother, uh, now deceased, uh, was an early onset, and it is, it's fairly routine that you'll have multiple schizophrenics in a family just like you'll have multiple hemophiliacs in a family, right? And so it happens that you get a lot of schizophrenics that are born, but it's very rare that you get one that is a schizotypical. So I may not be a typical schizotypical. I may have actually been an active schizophrenic that was uh, through sheer happenstance and, and the, the favor of universe was able to burn out active schizophrenia uh, through the ingestation of vast quantities of psychedelics and going through all of those kind of experiences over the course of a number of years. It may actually have been the case. I cannot say definitively one way or another. But nonetheless, I, I sit here now as a atypical, schizotypical, which, you know, it gives me certain powers. It's a, a, um, the ability to, for instance, see emotion in people in a way that others simply don't recognize. My and my mother would say after a fantastic explanation, like you're just Dave Cliff for yourself, capiche? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it, it, it is so. This is just, you know, uh, this is just the way it is. And, um, yeah. you know, at least I've, I've grappled with it. And, you know, having gone through death repeatedly in this life, uh, you basically just get to the point where you say, no, nah, I'm not going to put up with that bullshit. You know, I'm not going to heap it out there on anybody anymore. And I'm not, just not going to take it. If we, if we accept the idea that there's this war across time going on and there are these factions, large, say that there's two large factions fighting each other, there's people like myself that are not really involved in either side, okay? But I could be a fellow traveler to either side under the circumstances based on my understanding of the morality and what's going on. And they may choose to use us in these greater battles. Many of the people assigning us to these tasks in these greater battles wouldn't even be aware of the greater war going on. But it, it could be that in the larger spiritual warfare that is being out, put out there, so to speak, and the spiritual warfare is a new age label for this war across time. But in, this, in the spiritual warfare that's out there, I find myself aligned against individuals. And, and it's kind of like, well, I'm not saying that they're on the side of the bad guys, so to speak, but I'm I'm not on the side of the bad guys and they're using the same tactics that the bad guys use. Right. And, and fundamentally my way of dealing with things, especially since I'm an old fart is to try and navigate my way through the chaos of these next five or six or seven years as complete and whole as I possibly can. So I'm, I'm in a way I'm like sort of like Jay is thinking as a result of reading that book, I'm thinking that, okay, there's, uh, so I'm a guy on the, uh, we're going to imagine ourselves in a role here. Okay. I've got a house on the, on the coastline of France. Uh, I'm an old guy. I'm retired. I just want to garden and read my French philosopher books, but I know something weird's coming, right? I can feel world war II coming as the, up the backside of my hairs here on the back of my neck. And so I know I better get all of my food canned and I'm in a vulnerable position because if they've got to invade this country, they got to come through the coast all of these kinds of things, right? So I'm like that old French dude there, you know, thinking, you know, if I smoked anymore, I'd sit here with a, you know, a French no-filter cigarette and say- Like strong tobacco, right. Right, and I'd say, you know, well, smokers can't do it, but I would say, I smell war coming, you know? I smell events changing, I smell change coming. And let's acknowledge one other thing here that is really key to our thinking. On the other side of death, 
the other side of metempsychoses, there is no sensation, all right? There's no bodies, there's no material. This means that that is a place that we can call the realm of permanence. It means there's no change there. What you are there, you can never be anything other than what you are there, unless you come here to gain something, right? Some new experience, et cetera. So in the realm of permanence is actually a very non-growth area. There's no growth or any of that kind of thing. But that means that you leave the realm of permanence, you come through the metempsychoses on the other side, you get born into this world. And what is this world that we can say for certain? And, and we need to know it all the time. This world is constant, perpetual change, right? So you can harmonize with that or not, as you choose. <laughs> but I know change is, is happening. <laughs> Big changes. Exactly. And we're covering it. We had Ice Age Farmer on and David Icke, and uh, we're going to have some more people on, and Walter Bosley talking about the project, which is a very interesting subject. But we are addressing this because it does seem to be a timeline of around – 2024, 2025, somewhere in that area where they look to be, have a bunch of stuff completed. And um, uh, we have to be aware of that. And that's what we're trying to do on the show. Yep. Yeah. I need, I need to break off now. I've got to, yep. got to get moving. So, and I'm sorry for the delay. I, I should read that's my okay. daily Oh, yeah. So, yeah. No, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Cliff, so much again. Very interesting. Thank you. Yeah. Folks out there, you know, Cliff High. There it is. What can I say? I love having yeah. a conversation with Cliff, and I hope to have several others. Right, Jay? We will. We will. We will. Yeah. So be safe, be kind, be courageous, critically think for yourself, dig in, research. Let's see where we're going with this reality check, huh? Everybody have a fantastic week, day, month, year, whatever you consider time to be. Enjoy it. Talk to you later.